Does the climate crisis get you anxious? Yeah, me too. I want to fix it, so I'm going to do what I do best, report on what's going on, and build a news organization that does it well. Hi, I'm Mike Fouché, a reporter based in Chicago. I've covered politics, business, farming, and I've launched, operated, and sold multiple news operations. But before all that, I worked in Washington, D.C. for two different U.S. energy secretaries, where, among other things, I worked on climate and energy issues. Now I need your help to combine those two interests, reporting and climate, to help explain the United Nations global climate negotiations. And I already started my research. Last month, I sent a survey to thousands of negotiations attendees, and what I heard back was they don't think there's enough detailed reporting on the meetings. There's big things happening at the UN that people need to know more about. Debating a date to wean off fossil fuels for good. World leaders are calling to distribute hundreds of billions of aid to convert countries to green economies. There's even talk of creating a new global commodity, carbon credits, that could be traded and sold around the world by anyone, even you. To cover all this, I want to go to this year's United Nations negotiations meeting in Dubai from November 30th to December 12th, and maybe to some other meetings around the world. Starting in November, I'll report on negotiations and publish a daily newsletter for supporters, but I'm also going to meet with as many negotiators and climate advocates as possible so I can build a long-term business plan. I want to start a news organization that details what's going on to fix the world's climate. Contribute to my Kickstarter, send me to Dubai this fall, and let's shed some light on climate negotiations. This is The Coal Memo. I am your host, Cole Preston. Every episode is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the transcript, audio, or video version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. You can find the corresponding episode and then you'll be able to access the audio, video, and transcript versions of that episode. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode so that you might be able to do your own research. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's thecolememo.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a great way to support our show. One of the best ways to support our show is free. Leave us a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Favorite this episode, give it a thumbs up, leave a comment, or post a review. Your engagement and support is appreciated. In this episode, I speak to Mike Fouché. If you'd like to support Mike's Kickstarter, just go to gettingwarmer.co. Once again, that's gettingwarmer.co. Enjoy this episode of The Coal Memo.
Well, Mike, welcome to the Cold Memo. Hey, it's great to be here. Pleasure to speak with you. For yeah. those that uh, aren't aware of of who you are, do you mind uh, giving a little bit of an introduction on the outset of this conversation? Uh, who am I? Uh, I am a uh, political and business uh, reporter, journalist based in Chicago. Um, my uh, I've been doing reporting for about uh, 12, 15 years. Before that, I worked in politics uh, for a long time, including I started my career in Washington, D.C. And um, part of the time that I was there, I was heading up policy at the U.S. Department of Energy while well, heading up but being one of the leaders of policy at U.S. Department of Energy, um, which uh, led to my interest now. Um, part of what I did way back in the 90s in the early aughts was working on uh, climate and energy efficiency and, and those kind of things um, when everyone thought that it was something that was going to be really important a long time from then. And hey, look, it's over 20 years later and it's important now. So yeah, yeah, that's me. Thank you again for joining me today. And it's heatrising.net. That's the new uh, the new beat, right? That's my home for the moment. Yeah, uh, I've been keeping a blog, uh, newsletter, Substack, whatever you want to call it, uh, writing about uh, climate issues while I'm working on uh, a, a bigger project, which is uh, to cover uh, climate negotiations uh, starting uh, this November and December in Dubai. Uh, and I have this larger project and concept that uh and here's my kickstarter you can get to the kickstarter through the uh through heat rising but uh also getting warmer.co will direct you to that too um and the concept of the kickstarter is to send me to dubai and then you get a whole bunch of daily reports on what's actually happening along with pictures and if i can get some video interviews too that would be really cool um, you know, there's a lot going on with climate negotiations that is just not covered, not talked about, that's going to change our world in a big way, probably very soon. Yeah. And hey, what, what do you think? You want to dive into it? I know they've not happened yet, but I, I talked to you before, Aaron, uh, beforehand, and I thought it'd be interesting to tell people what are yeah. these climate negotiations? What's the history of them? So there, for the last, uh, this is now the number 28 that they're going to they they number them um and uh, so 28 years every year the 198 parties so they're not just countries so like the vatican has a representative that's there too um 198 parties have been going and meeting and talking about how to deal with climate change and that you know that's a huge huge topic and because it's this body of all of the countries of the world they can do pretty much anything they want if everybody agrees on it and the everybody agrees on it part is the really <laughs> hard thing um but you know they talk about things like setting uh standards for each country you know how much carbon emissions are we supposed to be putting out which is the really big story um and every country is supposed to set a goal in order to get us to net zero, so zero carbon emissions. The idea 
is that we want to keep the earth from warming less than one and a half degrees Celsius, which doesn't sound like very much. Right now we're at about 1.2 degrees Celsius, but that amount has already really started to impact our world. And when we see this summer, uh, the Gulf was at a hundred degrees, like you get in the water and it's a hundred degrees all the time. We've had bigger hurricanes. We've had uh, lots more floods. There's been droughts in all kinds of places. Um, huge, huge heat waves. Most of Southern Europe was in a giant heat wave, fires going across Greece, the fires in um, Canada, all of these things are traced directly to climate change. One of the things that's a, an immediate uh, economic impact is that Florida, Louisiana, Texas, these places are now losing insurers because the insurers say there's too much chance of of uh, wind and water damage, so we don't want to insure your home. So now something like 10, 15% of people in Florida don't have home insurance. So if there's a hurricane, they lose everything. And home insurance in Florida and in Texas is skyrocketing. There are people in Florida that are paying something like uh, $8,000 a year just in home insurance. I mean, that that's a big nut. You know, if, if you have a home that's, you know, $300,000 worth $300,000 and you're paying $8,000 a year, wow, man, I mean, you know, that's a lot of money. That's that's like uh, 3 4% of your, of, of the value of your home every year. Uh, you know, so this sort of thing is getting worse and worse and worse. And the climate negotiations are really the only place to address all of this. And some of the things that they're talking about are one, setting limits for the amount of carbon that we put out, but the other is setting an end date for the use of fossil fuels. So like no more fossil fuels, no more coal, no more gasoline, you know, no more natural gas. Uh, another is talking about sending hundreds, maybe trillions of dollars to developing countries so that they can build green economies. They don't have enough money for it, which would probably come out of our wallets. Uh, and this other really kind of amazing idea, which, which I don't think anybody has really thought through how big a change it would be, is creating essentially a whole new global currency. And the, that would be carbon credits. And the reason I say it would be a currency is, is that the idea that we're moving towards is that no matter where you are in the world, a unit of carbon would be worth the same. So you, me, large institutions, whoever, we might trade carbon credits among each other, which is a really kind of wild idea. Uh, and nobody really knows how that would work. They know that they need to make it work because in order to be able to make it so that people want to reduce the amount of carbon that they're putting out, you have to put some value on it. So it costs somebody something. How do you decide to do that? And we're really heading into this. I mean, I, I, I honestly think it's such a big giant idea. It's almost impossible for us to wrap our brains around. Uh, you know, it's like, what would happen if tomorrow everyone could fly? And, you know, well, yeah, that'd be fun. But then would you need a car? I mean, how do you get places? And, and so the idea of a global currency or something that's tradable around the world 
you know, I, I can't even begin to, to imagine what all the changes would result. And so that is what we're talking about here at these climate negotiations, ways in which our world is going to change in a just massive, massive way very soon. And, you know, in the next 15 years, probably. Yeah. Uh, the carbon standard reminds me of the gold standard almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, gold is tradable around the world and it has value for everybody. But the problem with gold is that it's so big and heavy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't carry around gold bars very easily. But a carbon credit would be digital. You know, you, you would potentially be able to carry it in your phone or in some sort of account somewhere, like a Bitcoin wallet. And that would be a very real thing. Um, you know, we would, I, I think that the the potential of change in our world because of that is is just enormous yeah so it looks like this is called cop 28 is that correct cop 28 conference of the parties of the it's, parties yeah Got they it. love their acronyms at the un uh, <laughs> there are so many they toss around acronyms all the time it's like it's like the military mm -hmm. uh except not sure uh, <laughs> sure it's, it's like if the military became a bunch of peaceniks. Um, right. And uh, so it's going to be in the in the UAE, the uh, United, uh, Arab, Emirates. United Arab Emirates. Wow, I can't believe I forgot that. So in <laughs> Dubai. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's ironic that it's going to be in Dubai because Dubai is basically just one big carbon spewing place you can't live there without a ton of air conditioning and it's not a walkable city you know it's all these huge yeah expressways everywhere um you know and it's literally i know that all cities are man-made but this is like a city that's made where am i wrong it's not really inhabitable <laughs> yeah know? it's in, it's in, it's on the ocean but you know it's not like a pleasant part of the ocean right it's, it's basically just sand and rock that just encounter water and it's not like there's trees and stuff like that it it's just desert and yeah. uh so we're going to a place which really shouldn't exist and is a huge carbon spewing location in order to talk about spewing less carbon in the air um and there's ironies of ironies abound it's whack yeah and before we talk about maybe some of the things you're anticipating or looking forward to with this year, uh, you know, the potential of going there uh, in mid-November, could you maybe give us a history of of how these things have gone in the past? Um, and we can start before the last president. I, this is the last president is why I am familiar with these talks, because am I wrong in thinking that we like backed out of those talks as a nation? Uh, not like the talks, but the the big agreement, which is called the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, so there had been a series of agreements which had come to really, there was a lot of talk. For the first 10, 12 years, uh, there was basically disagreement about what exactly is damaging and how much climate change is really bad and is there really climate change there was a lot of fighting about that and right around uh 2012 2013 there became 
a scientific consensus. There was a scientific consensus, but it became very clear. Here's, here's the work that shows 99% of the world's scientists said, there's climate change, it's really bad and it's coming. Uh, and then there was the idea about, well, how much, how do we decide exactly what limit do we have in order to stop climate change? Because a long time it was like, oh, well, maybe if we get to four degrees above the, the average temperature, we'll be okay. And in 2015, there was uh, what was called the Paris Agreement because you had uh, COP, uh, I can't remember what it was, COP 18 or something like that, uh, that was in Paris. And uh, they came to the agreement at this, or most of the countries in the world came to the agreement that we need to be below two degrees centigrade, preferably below one and a half. Two degrees, true disaster, like I polar ice caps will melt, everything will go bad. One and a half, pretty bad, maybe a lot of that. We're not really exactly sure how much, but in that half degree, things are pretty bad. And most of the world uh, agreed to this thing that we we're all going to get together and we're going to work on setting benchmarks for each of our countries on how much carbon we're gonna stop and we're gonna to work towards certainly having net zero by 2050 um, earlier if we can. And uh, every country agreed to do what they, they said was a, a global stock take where they'd set numbers to achieve. And then every five years, they'd look at their how they're doing. They take stock, so global stock take. And this year, by the way, is going to be the first stock take report. Uh, and the United States uh, signed the treaty uh, and uh, said that they're going to do it uh, under President Obama in 2016. And then as soon as uh, Donald Trump became president, one of the first things he did was say, the United States is not going to adhere to the Paris Agreement. We don't agree with any of that. Climate change is, you know, hokum. And uh, the world kind of lost its mind uh, and everyone decided, well, we're just gonna go on without the United States and we're gonna try and do everything we can. So the, the problem with that is that the, in order, the world's largest polluters in historical sense is the United States, than the European Union, than China, than India. Um, now, the current biggest polluters, like every year, it's the order has changed. So it's now China, the United States, India, the EU. So the EU has really reduced its polluting. The United States has leveled off its polluting, but China's polluting has just skyrocketed. Um, and that's so, and India as well. And there's a lot of interesting reasons behind that we can talk later, but basically the United States said, we're not gonna be part of this and stopped doing anything. While China, um, although they are polluting more, they actually also have the biggest renewable energy projects in the world. They, they, they're far ahead of everybody. And it's because their economy has been growing so much and they're over a billion people they've actually 
to a certain extent, kept a lid on their pollution with the amount of renewable energy projects. And they have the biggest uh, electric car production in the world by far. I mean, you know, Tesla is like a tenth of the world production and the rest of it is all Chinese companies. Um, a third of all cars in China are now electric that are being sold on an annual basis, which is an amazing amount. Um, and all of that happened because the United States got out of the game for about four years. And then as soon as Biden came back, he said, we are going to be part of the Paris Agreement. And then the various things passed, including the Inflation Reduction Act, which is not about inflation reduction, <laughs> but it is actually about creating a new green economy. Um, so, you know, it's hard to uh, track all this because there are so many different things. We're actually watching our national and global economy and probably way of life changing very fast in lots of very complicated ways. Um, and that's a large part of what I want to be reporting on uh, with the climate negotiations, because I see that as the center of where all these changes are coming. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one question I wanted to wrap back around to at the beginning that we kind of touched on and you just kind of touched on again. Um, but yeah, why, why are you covering these topics? I feel like through talking about it, it makes itself self-apparent why you're talking about these issues. Yeah. Um, well, you know, first off, I think that everybody in the world needs to know more about this. Uh, I think we're, we tend to not pay attention to it because A, it's the UN and everyone knows the UN is boring. And it is. I mean, you know, I mean, you, if you sit in on the meetings, if you watch the meetings, if you read the stuff about it, it's boring. God, you know, it's, it's so, it's not nearly as fun as a lot of other things. But the truth is, is that the impact that it's going to have on us is, is colossal. And the idea that just because we're the United States, we can do anything we want is really slipping away. Um, if you look at some of the negotiation points, some of the things that the world is talking about, we're ending up in a place where um, not just a majority, but almost everyone in the world is agreeing to certain things, except for the United States and Europe and, and China. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that the world agrees on is, is that we need to have a fund to help uh, developing countries deal with all of the damage that's being done that they can't pay for. You know, so rising tides, there are whole countries that are about to disappear. Um, the country of Tuvalu, I know it doesn't sound very big, you know, it's less than a million people, but they have started buying land in other countries when Tuvalu, so that when water in Tuvalu rises, they have a place to go because they anticipate that their island nation is going to disappear. You know, this sort of thing is, is happening uh, a lot. Um, the Philippines has become a major leader in climate change negotiations because they anticipate that a large part of the Philippines is just gonna get washed over with water from the rising oceans. Um, there are parts of Africa that are just now heading into permanent drought 
that they, because the rains just don't come anymore. There are parts of Europe that are doing that. Uh, they anticipate less wine production in France. This year, the cost of olive oil has quadrupled because Spain and Greece have not been able to produce as much olives as they have in the past because of the heat. So these things are really starting to impress the rest of the world and the United States can't keep resisting. And I think that it's important for Americans and others in the West uh, to be able to understand this story and the context of it all. Uh, we can't keep looking just at home and burying our head underwater or under the sand all the time uh, because it's coming to get us. Yeah. Yeah. And just to get back to, thank you for addressing while you're covering this, uh, just to get back to uh, the negotiations. Um, I'm just curious in the past, if you've watched, it sounds like you have been watching, you know, and kind of keeping track of these over the years. You mentioned that before 2012, there wasn't really a consensus that this was caused by, you know, as man-made uh, climate change, you know. Uh, well, let's say there wasn't a political consensus. Political there was consensus. A, there was a scientific consensus. True. And um, the resistance largely came from oil producing uh, and oil, the major oil consumers. And so the OPEC nations led by Saudi Arabia and Russia and the United States and Canada pushed very, very, very hard back against the idea that climate change was something that was coming soon. It was always the idea, well, it'll come sometime in the far future. Um, but we don't have to worry about it right now. We'll get to it when we get to it. The scientists were jumping up and down and saying, oh, no, 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 this is a real problem. And in fact, there's stories coming out now, for instance, uh, uh, it turns out ExxonMobil way back in the 1980s had an internal scientific report that said that climate change is real and it is going to be doing damage and it's because of the stuff that we're pulling out of the ground. So, you know, people- I was about to say, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they had like a Philip Morris-esque, like, you know, how Philip Morris had similar, they had like scientific yeah. studies where they knew, you know? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, we now know that. I mean, that that has come, that is public. Uh, the oil companies have known that what they're doing is damaging and you know, you now have, you still have countries like Saudi Arabia and UAE, uh, who is hosting this year's talks, uh, that have been resisting. The United States is one of the major resistors and has been consistently. Um, one of the really fascinating things about these climate talks is that it used to be that around five or 6,000 people would go, which is a good sized number, but you know, you can sort of imagine that in like a little conference area. Now you're getting 40,000 that are registered, but there's tens of thousands of more people that are sort of in these side meetings and all this other stuff that's going on. And those meetings are attracting a lot of people from oil companies and financial companies that have a lot at stake with energy. And those people are there to push back. They lobby. They're there to push against uh, the idea of 
dealing with climate change. Now, there's lots of activist groups that are there too. Um, you know, Greenpeace has a huge presence. World Wildlife Fund has a huge presence. So there's a lot of those groups that are there, but they don't have as nice parties. And, uh, you know, they, they don't have as, as much high-end booze. So it- You mean yeah, money, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that there is a certain imbalance, yet at the same time for a lot of these developing nations who are really not interested in what the oil companies have to say because climate change is a clear and present danger for them. And it's becoming increasingly so for the United States. I mean, we, you know, like I was talking about with Florida, uh, this is a real thing that is happening to us now, not sometime in the future. Yeah, very well said. Um, so what, yeah, what was it like before there was political consensus at these, you know, I know you mentioned this, My is this your first one that you would attend? It's my first one, but uh, I used to get pretty regular briefings uh, yeah. because the Department of Energy, it was it was uh, folks from my office that went and were the technical representatives. Um, actually, the guy, the main negotiator from the Department of Energy had his office next to mine, and uh, I would get their readouts. And, you know, what was discussed was um, how much, how fast things are going uh, and whether or not it's something that's a real danger sometime in, in the near future. Mm. And that was kind of a ridiculous conversation because <laughs> rather than dealing with, okay, well, here's a problem. The, the question is, well, how long can we wait before we have to deal with this? And, you know, at the time it just seemed like, oh yeah, you know, this is, this is bad, you know, oh, well. There were there were a lot of other things that seemed a lot more present, like you know, how are we going to be able to make sure that everybody's homes are heated with heating oil? Um, we weren't really comprehending that there was a necessi necessary change in how our world works, and and things were really nascent. I mean, I, I actually went uh, at, at Argonne National Laboratories here in Illinois. Uh, I went on a tour of the lab with uh, Energy Secretary Federico Pena, and they had been at Argonne developing regenerative brakes. So, you know, regenerative brakes in cars so that when you brake, it takes the energy and puts it back into a battery. And, you know, we drove in one of the first regenerative braking cars. I think it was a Ford Escort that they had modified. And, you know, so this was in 1999. You know, it's a really... That was a brand new idea. And now these sort of things, you know, you can go buy, you, you buy an EV, it has regenerative brakes. I mean, they, they all have them. Uh, Toyota Priuses have had them for a long time. Right. Um, so there was a lot of technology that we were talking about that is now really coming to fruition. The solar uh, at uh, around 2000, you know, was considerably more expensive technology you know, really only rich people could conceive having solar panels on their house. And even then it wouldn't necessarily really defray the cost. It was more kind of a virtue signaling more than anything else. And now it's cheap. If you can put the money up front, you know, you're going to make back the money on solar for your house in probably less than 10 years. 
and uh, you know, then you're making money. You know, you basically have free electricity. If if you're buying a house and you can put up another ten, twelve thousand dollars in order to put solar on top of your house, you know, by the time you know you've had it for half your mortgage period, you're going to be making a lot of money. Um, that's that's a big change, and and I think that that sort of thing now in the world that we live in we can do something about it. Whereas back then it was sort of like, uh, you know, I don't know, we can't really get rid of gas cars. Uh, yeah. Like electric cars seemed really far in the future. Right. People would make jokes like, oh, it's going to die before you leave the parking lot, you know, the car. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, they didn't really exist. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I ask that question is because I – I got the impression that without political consensus that maybe we were just like tripping over ourselves. And it sounds like maybe that was accurate where you were saying like, well, we're not having a conversation of what we need to do, but when we need to do it and um, stuff like that, you know, and, well, and I guess, you know, I think, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I think the people who are climate advocates would say that the problem that we had 20 years ago was a lack of imagination mm. and that we we probably could have sped up the development of these technologies a lot if there was a big pot of money that was put into it if the federal government said this is a priority and here's what we're going to do but i i don't think that even if you got three super rich people together and piled their money together that that would have been enough resources in order to, you know, fix everything, uh, you know, or make the technology work. Um, I mean, we did have a technology problem that probably could have been sped up by 10 years, maybe 15. But, you know, again, we're, we're a, a lot of the issues with climate change is about human ability to manage imagine something different it, it it's hard for us to imagine that we can have electric cars everywhere it's hard for us to imagine what life will be with electric cars um you know i mean like one of the things that that i was talking about with somebody is where are you going to go buy your cigarettes well you know a lot of people when they go buy their cigarettes they buy it at a gas station they, they buy it at a gas station when they go, you know, get a gallon, you know, a few gallons of gas. And I don't know, is that what you do? Um, and uh, what happens if you don't need to go to a gas station? What happens to gas stations? Uh, and how are people going to charge up? I mean, there was a story in the Chicago Sun-Times the other day about a parking lot uh, that's downtown that's going to put in in conjunction with the big local utility, ComEd, they're going to put in 300 more charging stations in that parking lot. So, you know, who's going to be making that money? Is it going to be parking lots? Are parking lots all of a sudden going to be making money? Are utilities going to be making money? Are we going to see a place to go buy cigarettes in a parking lot? You know, like, what happens? Uh, and there's so many changes that I think that are going to come as a result of the new technologies and the way that we need to live differently that we just can't comprehend how different it is. Like, I mean, 
this thing, my phone, has changed my life in so many ways. And I can't imagine going back to what it is. I love to read books about the 1970s because everything seems so quiet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that we're going to see some real, real changes. And uh, I think that, you know, back then in the 90s and early aughts, we just didn't have the capacity to imagine how our world could change or would change uh, as a result of climate change. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, I couldn't imagine not having a phone. I'm about to do like a trip to one of my first trips to DC, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, I wouldn't be able to find my way if I didn't have my phone to tell me every turn of the way. Like, yeah. forget getting a physical map out. Like, I yeah. was not born in that generation. <laughs> yeah. You know, Google Maps has really changed. You can take public transit anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, true. You know, you, you go to a place where you don't speak the language and Google Maps will tell you where to go. You don't have to. I mean, that that's an incredibly uh, hopeful thing. You know, it makes you want to feel comfortable with going and doing new things. Um, so I think that we're really, the, the problem with climate change we have is, is less about technology, certainly now less about technology and more about human capacity to imagine the differences and how we do things differently. And, and that's a large part of what I wanna be able to cover and talk about, you know, in these, negotiations, we're talking about really revolutionary changes to our world and parts of the world that want to change those things. And, and you know, when you say climate change, revolutionary changes, the immediate thought that everybody has is, oh, well, you know, we're going to have carbon limits and stuff like that. Yeah. But we're going to have things like if everyone has solar or if a lot of people have solar, do you really need a utility anymore? And that's a big change in your life. You know, what do utilities do? Uh, where are you gonna go if you have an electric car? You know, you don't have to go to a gas station anymore. What happens to all the gas stations? What happens to the auto mechanics? What happens to the towns? You know, one of the things I noticed in when I traveled through Nevada, there was a lot of ghost towns. And what I learned it was because of the increased fuel efficiency of cars that the towns oh, wow. in between, yeah. just nobody stopped to get gas anymore. So the town yeah. just died. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I used to travel in West Virginia a lot. And in West Virginia, a lot of times and in a lot of rural places, the one business that a town will have that is local is an auto mechanic. Yep. So because you have to have a local auto mechanic, right? <laughs> and so what happens? Uh, you know, I think those things are really really major changes that, that we just can't imagine. I mean, th this fight with the UAW is about the fact that it takes a lot fewer people to put together an EV than it does to put together an internal combustion engine. And you don't need spark plugs. You don't need crankshafts. You don't need transmissions. You don't need fuel injection. There's all these hundreds and hundreds of pieces of assembly that aren't necessary. But there are a different set of jobs, but you know, there's this is all changing to a different place. So 
you know, our world yeah. is getting ready for a pretty big shift. And, and I'm not sure that we really comprehended how, how much of a change it's going to be for all of us. I wanted to add a, a different layer to this, but a, a, one of the things I'm thinking of right now, when you think of people can't imagine, I'm sure when the light bulb first came out, people were like, hold on a second. I light the torches every night. What the hell is going to happen to my job? And it's like, well, so now we replace the light bulbs, right? <laughs> or, Well, well, I, I actually, I mean, to go a little further, I mean, the, sure. at the time, it was very expensive to have oil or it was very expensive to have gas lamps or very dirty. And you didn't want to have a lot of them because it would get you dirty. Uh, you would have smoke everywhere. And the inexpensiveness and the convenience of an electric light bulb changed how people would spend their day yeah you know, now when the sun goes down you could still do stuff you know and so all of a sudden you had this nightlife and nightlife didn't necessarily mean staying out and drinking it meant right maybe you would read right you know maybe you would get together with your friends and just hang out and talk or your family Mm -hmm. There was this expansion of leisure time that came as a result of the light bulb. We, we couldn't imagine that. Yeah. And so I think that we're, we're really on the edge of some major societal changes that we just can't imagine. And all of this is going to come out of the climate negotiations. You know, this is, this is the nexus. And, and I think that we're not as a people really completely anticipating all the change. I keep saying that again and again, but it's, it's something that fascinates me. Um, you know, the idea of secondary effects. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, so a secondary effect is a thing that you don't anticipate would happen as a result of a change. Well, Walmart is a secondary effect. You wouldn't have had Walmart unless automobiles and large roads had been created. Yeah. There would be no need for Walmart. Walmart is a secondary effect of the popularization of, of the automobile. That's period. It, there, there's no need for it otherwise. So imagine big box stores, you know, what, do, do we need, are big box stores still gonna exist? I don't know. I mean, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things like that that I don't think we can really anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, hey, I want to wrap up the conversation with uh, just uh, two more topics. People can't imagine, right? We were just talk talking on that subject. I wanted to ask you, do you think this is another layer of maybe some people uh, can't accept or might have trouble accepting? And I want to back up and say this is born out of, I remember or I recall it's funny, last time we spoke, we talked about Jimmy Carter in a different context, but um, I recall that Jimmy Carter suggested, I believe it was Jimmy Carter, that like maybe instead of turning the heat up during the winter, that people could just put on a sweater. Wear and a Americans sweater. were like, I'll be yeah. goddamned if I do right. that. Right. You know? the, the famous. Well, I think it was it was less that I'll be goddamned if I wear a sweater and it was more, uh, how is it that Jimmy Carter is allowing these uh, OPEC nations push us around. Uh, and, and I think that people were really angry about being pushed around. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the, I think the, the big difference that we have here is, is that 
there is no person. This is physics. This is nature that's changing. So, you know, you can't say, well, we're going to go punch nature's nose uh, and make it stop. You know, this is a inexorable tide. It, it, you know, when the tide starts coming in, <laughs> you know, you can't stand there and yell at it. Uh, right. It's not going to stop. It's going to keep coming. But uh, do you get the uh, the base, like maybe some of these unforeseen changes that we've been talking about during the episode, it might cause a little bit of a discomfort, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe people should prep for that. Uh, I'm, my in-laws live in Kentucky and, uh, you know, when I go to Kentucky, there are, there are, everyone drives a double wide and, uh, you know, the license plates, they, they have these, uh, special license plates that say friend of coal, uh, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, coal used to be a major way of life. It's not really anymore. Most of the coal jobs are gone. A lot of people remember it and they hold on to it like good times because jobs paid well, even though lots of people got black lung disease and lots of people got really hurt. Um, so it, it is a, it, there are good memories of having a good income and living well um and that's a change and i'm not sure that everyone wants to live that change it it's hard to imagine how your life could be different when you don't really know what it could be like you know um unknown unknown yeah and that well it so uh, you know, I have a son who is just starting high school. He's doing great now, but before he went to high school, it was hard for him to imagine how good it could be. And, you know, when you're in eighth grade and you think about what that world is going to be, um, it could be scary. You know, maybe you know some people who've done it before you, and so then it's not so scary. Maybe you have an older sibling and they're having a great time. You think it's going to be awesome. But my son didn't. Uh, and, you know, I think there was a lot of anticipation now that he's there. It's great. But I think that's a lot of what life is like, you know, it, it's hard to imagine, uh, how to get excited about a thing that you just don't know anything about. And, and that's a large part of our world. Well said, well said. Well, Mike, it was a pleasure speaking to you about these topics and I want to have more of these conversations with you. Maybe you can be our uh, recur recurring climate beat person be on the Cole memo or something. Um, before we leave, uh, do you have, what are you hopeful for? I, I, I you know, I want to make sure that this didn't seem like too negative of an episode. Do you have any positive notes to end on? Uh, well, first, I'm hopeful that everyone's going to contribute to my Kickstarter. Um, yeah. So go to gettingwarmer.co, uh, and that'll link you directly to the Kickstarter page, gettingwarmer.co. Um, and uh, if you contribute to the Kickstarter, you you get part of uh, all the things that are going on and, and regular reports for me starting in November. Uh, you know, I think that I think that we are going to make these changes. And I think that what we're gonna end up with is a place that's cleaner, healthier to live in, uh, and um, probably more enjoyable. Um, you know, I've noticed that having EV cars around is nicer. Uh, 
um, than loud cars that are you know spewing stuff. Um, I've uh, I, I have a lot of hope and excitement for uh, less expensive stuff. I think that you know as we move to renewables, that's a lot less expensive than coal and natural gas. I I think that we could have a less expensive lifestyle. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, ultimately this is going to require a lot of us to pull together in a way that we hadn't thought about before. So I'm hopeful that in 20, 30 years, the world is maybe a closer, more tight knit place. Uh, you know, we now have a common, common enemy and the common enemy is the destruction of our planet as we know it. So you know, maybe like an Independence Day, Bill Pullman will stand on top of a car and give a speech and we'll all get excited and start fixing the world. That'd be great. This yeah. is our Independence Day. Yeah. Here's to hoping. Folks. Yeah, right. <laughs> folks, I hope you found uh, as much value in this conversation as I did. All of the links that we mentioned in this episode will be in the podcast description. So if it's easier for you to just click and go and support the Kickstarter campaign, then by all means, go that route. So, um, Mike, did you have fun today? It's a different a conversation, time. different conversation than great. we normally have, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine with me. I had a great yeah. time. I'm looking forward to more of these. Like I say, I think it'd be cool to 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 continue these talks maybe after you return um, in November. I have faith that, that we're going to be sending you out there and I'll do my part to share the Kickstarter campaign. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Yeah, and folks, join me. I I contributed to the Kickstarter campaign. Let's send That's Mike right, out did. there. For, That's right. Uh, Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Cole. I really appreciate it. it it's uh, good to have your support. Absolutely. Well, again, folks, hope you found as much value in this conversation as I did. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you, Cole. Great talking to you.